Welcome back to Palestine Deep Dive. From wherever you are in the world, uh, you're very welcome. And uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, each time we look at issues, uh, global issues, uh, and we take a particular deep dive and look at what's happening in the Middle East. And we are joined with a whole variety of great guests uh, who offer a special expertise, a special knowledge, a special insight that we don't really think is available in many other places on the mainstream media. And this week, uh, I'm delighted to be joined once again by Colonel Larry Wilkerson. And many of you, of course, will be familiar with Larry, but for those of you who aren't, Larry is a retired US Army Colonel. Uh, he served as Secretary of State uh, uh, for the Secretary of State Colin Powell's Chief of Staff from 2002 to 2005. And Larry subsequently became well known for his criticism of the US invasion of Iraq. Uh, and he believed that the CIA lied to Colin Powell, uh, as well as taking issue as he's done oh, quite consistently over the years with the ongoing war on terror and the role in what he and many others now believe that the American military industrial complex has in a sort of drive for permanent war, if you like. Um, I'm Mark Seddon. I, I used to be the Al Jazeera United Nations correspondent. I subsequently worked for the UN Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon and more recently for the President of the UN General Assembly, uh, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. I've been a journalist for most of my life, uh, but I'm always, as a journalist, much more interested in what other people have got to tell us. And so uh, I'm particularly grateful to Larry for joining us again um, with his special insights. And I really wanted to begin, Larry, um, at, at taking a look at, because the last time we spoke, we were, we, were, we were thinking in advance about the US presidential election. We were guessing at what its priorities might be, depending on who is to win. And actually many of your predictions I've been looking back would turned out to be quite prescient. Um, but we're literally weeks into the Biden presidency. Um, and while in many respects much appears to have changed, in reality, it feels as though much hasn't. Um, but they, what, we, what we've been missing, of course, is a sort of turbocharged kind of uh, craziness of the social media-driven uh, uh, Trump kind of agenda. But what's your... It's very early to say, of course, but over a matter of weeks, what's your early feel for the Biden administration? Uh, is, it, is, it, is it confident? Does it know what it's going to be doing? Is it a bit shell-shocked? I mean, just give us your first impressions if you can. Unfortunately, sad to say, um, I don't think it is a bit early because as anyone who studied the U.S. presidency, particularly since World War II closely, you understand that in our republic, such as it is, you better get stuff done in the first six months to 12 months because the next three years are terrible. And a second term sometimes, even for a person like Ronald Reagan, uh, if you go back and look, his legislative achievements were all in the first term. Um, so it's not too early, I don't think. And my, my assessment right now is somewhat disquieting um, and I, I, I have to say that after seeing Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, and Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, who bring, to be sure, a softer touch to diplomacy, if you will, than the thug Mike Pompeo did, I wouldn't even bless him with the term diplomat, um, their meeting with Wang Yi and Yang Yichi in Alaska contrasted, for example, with the meeting between Sergei Lavrov and Wang Yi in Guilin, China, yesterday or day before, gives me great heartburn and trouble. Um, it's clear that Sergei is still the quintessential diplomat he was when Colin Powell worked with him. And Wang Yi, I've known since the summer of 2001, he is an expert in North America. And listening to them talk about cooperation and the need to cooperate and peer power cooperation and so forth. And listening to Blinken and Sullivan and Wang Yi on the other side and Yang um, was quite a contrast, a stark contrast. The arrogance of the United States was so apparent 
even with the new velvet gloves, if you will, and the new administration, that um, it, it really turned me sour almost immediately. And if that's what we're going to have, if we're going to have that with Iran, if we're going to have that with Russia, with China, and with others, um, it's not much of a change. Uh, it's just a little softer approach. It's interesting what you're saying when you, you talk about um, an arrogance abroad, if you like. Is it, is it because the new SU administration has made so much of returning to the sort of rules-based order, multilateralism, it's going to be back taking its part in the international community? It just essentially thinks it can slip back to exactly where it was uh, a reset when Obama left office. Is that, is that the mentality, do you think? As though not, the past four years simply hasn't happened, just accept us back on our own terms. Yeah, I think that's some of it. And as I said to a German friend yesterday in an email, I know what you mean when you say that Trump was America's president. Trump was the face of America for four years to the rest of the world. You don't just suddenly say, I'm not Trump and I'm kind and gentle or whatever and have the rest of the world believe you wholeheartedly right off the bat. Uh, they know 2024 looms and they know that Joe Biden probably won't be the candidate. And uh, you know, it's, it's, I can't get out of that mindset that they must be in. Uh, is this going to really last? And if it is going to last, is it Biden or is it the group that's associated itself with Biden because of his comfort with them from the Obama days? I'd say the latter. And I'd say the Obama days were not the best days either for America in terms of things like stupid wars, Libya comes to mind immediately, Syria too. And the things that we are ranting against in the crowd that I run with that I think are taking this uh, empire in the wrong direction. Well, Larry, um, it, I have heard, I mean, the administration has sort of walked back from this uh, idea of um, humanitarian military interventionism. It, 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 uh, there have been some quite powerful public statements saying we've learned our lessons, we're not going to go down that route anymore. Do you, do you, attach, uh, 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 do you attach a great deal of importance to that? Do you believe people when they say that? I think probably President Biden means that. But again, the team arrayed around him from Kurt Campbell to Tony Blinken tells me otherwise. It tells me that this is the Obama crew back again and not necessarily the best of the Obama crew. This is the Hillary Clinton, uh, Susan Rice, Samantha Power type group that was around President Obama when he said to me in the Roosevelt Room in 2015, seven years into two terms as president, there's a bias in this town toward war. And I almost fell off my chair, as did the general sitting beside me. John Kerry almost fell off his chair, too, because John was advocating for troops on the ground in Syria at that time. And President Obama was speaking to him as much as he was to us, telling him, no way, no way. I've got burned in Libya. I'm not going into Syria. But let's just look at the force laid down that we still have in the world right now. It's awesome especially in the Middle East. And General McKenzie is lusting to go to war with somebody, preferably Iran, but you know, someone else might do too. Um, and we've just had an election in Israel, which has apparently put the, the, the criminal back as prime minister. We don't know if he can form a government. And he's gonna have to be a little quiet because they're beginning to work on Demona, their nuclear complex, the only nuclear weapons complex in the region. And so they can't be making too much noise about Iran looking for a nuclear weapon. But I'm still concerned that the JCPOA has any hope of being revived. And I'm concerned about some of the other things that are going on in that region that Netanyahu and Trump and Pompeo and others, uh, Kushner, have left as legacy for President Biden and his team. Well, Larry, I mean, we're going to come back to some of those issues a bit later on. Um, and of course, unfortunately, as we speak, we don't actually know the final outcome of the Israeli election. Although, as you say, it does look as though uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu could be back and with the support of, um, of, of, of groups that are seen as being extremist by Likud. I mean, it, by organisations such as I think it's... Uh, uh, an organization called Jewish Power, for instance, uh, which may actually get parliamentary representation, which is 
it's just so way out there. It's uh, that the, the Kudniks uh, don't really want to have anything to do with them, but may well have to. But I wonder if I could come back just very briefly to the mood music in the United States itself, because uh, in the run-up to the presidential elections, the degree of polarization, uh, the use of social media, the, the whirl of fake news and allegations of fake news, the, the, the essential um, uh, sort of splitting of America into, uh, into camps that, that barely talk to one another, um, is there any indication that at least things have been, you know, calmed down a little bit? It's, it's been tempered. The, 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 the we, we're not being uh, subjected to Trumpian blasts on social media every day. Is there an acceptance by some of Trump's most ardent supporters that actually the election was lost? It's time to move on. Have, are people calming down? I suppose is my question. The hot edge to it has dissipated somewhat, you're right. And one has to attribute that to the disappearance of Trump. I mean, the media is trying to get him back as much as they can. The media made Donald Trump as much as Donald Trump made Donald Trump. And they, they regret his being gone. And I mean that sincerely because their ratings have fallen off a bit and he, they don't have quite the, uh, the, the character to go after these days. Um, but I'm seeing enough around the hustings, as it were, um, from a group that I just had to deal with this morning out in Colorado Springs, Colorado, one of the hotbeds of American fundamental Christianity, where an Air Force chaplain is actually hosting one of the militia groups in a church. He's an Air Force chaplain, Air National Guard of Montana chaplain. And he's now backing in and squirming, trying to say that you know, this might be Hitler-like, but uh, it doesn't really register for the church to cut them off. Are you kidding me? Are you joking at this time uh, when we've got uh, people like this on the FBI's most wanted list, so to speak? I mean, FBI agent told me the other day the number one thing on their agenda now is not violent extremism, their new term of art, overseas or internationally, it's domestic. And that's where they're focused right now. Um, so this is not the time to be doing that. These people have gone to bed, if you will, and they're still planning and they're still plotting as far as I'm concerned. The more dangerous elements of them are still out there, the armed elements amongst them. I'm hoping that enough has happened that's awakened enough Americans. And you would think with the shootings we've just had and are probably gonna continue to have, um, it, it, it would finally register, but I've been here a long time <laughs> and yeah. it doesn't seem to register in any way that makes Americans able to change because there's such a powerful minority in the country. Well, I noticed today, I'm just in passing, that the, uh, the National Rifle Association were running a whole series of adverts talking about the threat to your uh, personal arms provided by the Biden administration at the same time um, yet another active shooter has been arrested for shooting people in a supermarket. So it does it does seem, as you say, perhaps perhaps it's perhaps one day if it happens to be an, a militia member who's doing this. I mean, perhaps that makes some kind of difference. But uh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's you a never know. Uh, but anyway, it, the NRA is a phenomenon that uh, has been examined and thoroughly taken apart and stories and books written and published and their membership just continues to stay there. It's kind of like uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox news. You know, you can, you, you just can't get people out of that situation. If they are ramified every day with the information that supports it. Well, I was totally, I was told the other day, this is a frightening statistic to me that the military did an informal look on its bases in continental United States and a few overseas. And they found that 90 plus percent of the time in whatever facility they were in, the TV, and we have TVs everywhere now, was turned to Fox. This is what broadcasts to the military 24 <laughs> seven. This, this well, is not good. 
you know, Larry, I'm 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 glad you 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 taken off uh, taken us off to talk about this. Actually, I mean, I I, I hadn't really thought about it, but uh, I'm thinking about the times that I've lived and worked in the United States and the in, immense power of some of the TV networks. And you know, there's a great debate going on in this country too about the future of public service broadcasting, um, and another attempt by Rupert Murdoch to uh, bring a news channel to Britain, which would be an opinionated one. Now, at the moment, there are rules that uh, govern that, but these rules could well be watered down by any government that actually sees the Murdoch as an ally. And the problem is, as, as you were just talking about there, is this the enormous power of media networks and how polemical they all are. And for people across the world who are watching this, who aren't familiar with um, US-style uh, news programmes, well, they're opinion programmes, aren't they, really, Larry? I mean, you talked about Carson Tucker. People, If they, people haven't heard of him, perhaps they should just watch him. And, and see for themselves, but um, or, or watch Kevin Rudd's testimony before the Australian Parliament on Rupert Murdoch. Uh, Kevin is Kevin is no unsmart man. He's a brilliant man. You may disagree sometimes with his policies. Speaks fluent Mandarin. Probably one of the best China experts I've ever spoken with. And uh, Kevin just tears Murdoch up, and he's trying to buy Australia now. He's trying to purchase the Australian media. Mm, yes, yes. Well, I mean, perhaps we should we should come back and do a separate program about um, about uh, media power and uh, the extraordinary influence that um, social media has. Oligarchs like uh, Rupert Murdoch have, and what have you. But I just wanted, if if I may, to return to uh, the condition of um, the U.S. government uh, and, in particular, the departments of state, um, because. Throughout the Trump uh, presidency, we were hearing about uh, highly qualified people leaving different departments of state. Uh, extreme concern about the condition um, that these uh, departments were entering into. And of course, in recent weeks, we've heard something about Homeland Security, about the border agencies, about real concern that, that so many people have gone um, and, the, and the, the, these, these state departments are really just not fit for purpose often now. Is it the case that there's been um, really very serious damage done to the institutions of American governance? Um, and if that's the case, uh, can this be turned around and fairly quickly? The swift and I think accurate answer to your question, the first part anyway, is yes, they have been damaged. The second part is not so, not so encouraging um, when you get a new secretary of state, that's the department that most often concentrates on its top floor. That is to say, it's the secretary of state and the some 30 or 40, maybe more individuals that he or she brings into the department. And the foreign service and the civil service and the other elements, even the foreign service nationals are more or less neglected. So I don't see Blinken, Blinken as being a Schultz, a George Schultz or a Colin Powell, who first and foremost tell their foreign service, civil service and others, I'm for you and I'm gonna prove it. I'm gonna fix some of the problems on the hire new people. I'm gonna get billions of dollars out of the legislature to do it and so forth and so on. That's a rare thing. And I don't perceive Blinken, Blinken being that way. And the State Department is in some straits right now. Um, Blinken and his team will probably think they can handle all the big itches from the top floor and not worry about it. I hope not. I, I hope they re-energize it because you can't, it's kind of like an NCO, a non-commissioned officer in the army. You don't grow one up in a year. It takes 14, 15 years. And, and we've just devastated the foreign service. And you've got to convince young people to come back into it, too. You've got to get them going and you've got to get them energized and so forth. The other departments, it's the same way, um, but not quite to the extent it is at the State Department in terms of the top wanting to run everything. And the sad thing is you can get away with doing that. If the president uh, is distracted, and usually they are, you can get away with doing that. You can be the State Department to the president and to the rest of the world, too. So it's gonna be hard and, and I don't see it being fixed soon. I, my students, right before I left William & Mary this last semester, were telling me about all kinds of problems with the Foreign Service trying to get in everything. And for, for the most part, they were abandoning the process. They were going elsewhere. 
they were going to Wall Street or were they going to Deloitte, Touche, or some other high-paying job rather than trying to persist in going into a public service position. So yes, it, it's going to be a problem. And there was, it, it, four years is a long time to neglect an institution like the Department of State or Homeland Security. Homeland Security is still reeling from the fact we created it. It is such a disparate group of cultures. It is so different. The secretary can't possibly manage that department. So you have to depend on all the little individual places where mission responsibility lies and the missions are all disparate. The cultures are all different. So Homeland Security is always gonna be a problem. Um, defense is probably the most coherent of them all, stands up and is counted regardless of who's the president. But that in itself, too, is an indication of the demise of our democracy, that the Defense Department is the leading, most moneyed, most powerful, and most apt to do your policy for you department in the U.S. government. That's not good. So, yeah, there are problems. And Biden won't fix them in four years, but I hope he gets to fixing, at least starting some of the fixing. Talking about the fixing, I mean, um, uh, and, and changed natures of relations with, with various countries, I thought I might quickly turn to uh, the United States relationship with uh, other countries uh, around the world. And beginning with Saudi Arabia, um, there was a lot of uh, obvious interest when President Biden first took office as to who he would be calling first. There's always that great clamor. Who's he going to call first? And of course, we know who he called last. And uh, one of the last people to be called was the, <laughs> the Saudis. Um, and of course, um, we now have had the, the revelation the, 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 the United States has firmly pointed the finger at the crown prince uh, in connection with the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, we also know that the United States has declared 70 odd Saudi individuals as people that they, you know, are, are, that they can't, uh, they can't travel to the United States. There are various sanctions on them. Um, didn't go it much further than that. But do you, do you read into all of this is that the Biden administration is prepared to obviously be a bit tougher than the Trump administration was with the Saudis, but, but not as tough as really needs be. Um, to actually affect any change in their behavior, especially when it comes to their behavior in Yemen. Yeah, I think that's where we're gonna see the proof. Um, I'm encouraged somewhat by what's happened to this point. I'm not encouraged by the fact that right into the middle of it, the Saudis started a bombing campaign, um, but I am encouraged and I'm encouraged by the way, I think the administration has finally come around after not being of this mind initially to the clear fact that the, the blockade is terrible. Uh, they wanted to offer up all kinds of reasons why it wasn't as bad as humanitarian organizations said and so forth initially. But I think now they've come around and realized the blockade needs to be lifted. It needs to be lifted forthwith. Um, if, if that were to happen, if the Houthis were not to take major advantage of that, and if the talks were to proceed, and I think the current envoy is of, of the right mind, we could see some progress in that. And that's gonna tell me more about our, our position with regard to the kingdom than anything else. You know, you can talk about Jamal Khashoggi, horrible, brutal murder that it was all day long. And, you know, it, it is not gonna change our relationship significantly. This war in Yemen though, if it persists, just might. And, and so they, they have a, a real motivation to tackle that and to get it under, under some kind of political solution. There's another problem there too. The Red Sea has become the cockpit of intense competition, strategic danger, uh, far more important now than the Persian Gulf. The only thing that still gives the Persian Gulf any relevance is Iran and our position vis-a-vis -vis Iran, which is stupid. But nonetheless, it does. The Red Sea is a real cockpit of intrigue and danger right now. You've got all kinds of refugees. You've got over 170 million refugees in the world now, many of them coming out of the Yemen war or uh, the other way from Eritrea and Ethiopia, seeking some kind of money-making position as virtually slaves in the Gulf states. Um, so th this is a real problem right now. In Djibouti alone, you have five military powers Cheek and Jow, including China, France, Japan, the United States. Um, one Marine said to me, if we put another soldier or Marine on Djibouti, we'll sink it. 
And of course the leadership loves it because he plays them all off against each other. The Turks are even looking for a base north of Djibouti now, probably on the Sudanese, Eritrean, Ethiopian, somewhere around their coast. Uh, this is not being paid a lot of attention to except by the military, uh, but it's becoming a real potential for danger, strategic danger. Because when, when I was with the United Nations, I went to Djibouti two or three times with the Secretary General. Um, and of course, in, in that period of time, I noticed the most extraordinary degree of development around the port, uh, around the railways. Uh, the, there's obviously the historic French military influence, but there is the military influences that you're talking about. And then, of course, there's the Chinese economic interest. Um, yes. There's one major port, which is uh, fairly uh, strategically safe, unlike the ports in Somalia and Eritrea and what have you. But economically... I'm, this, I wasn't going to ask you about this, but this is fascinating. And I think, you know, our, our viewers will be interested um, in this. You know, what, what is it about the Red Sea uh, that makes it so important? I went to a United States Institute of Peace tabletop game for two days that featured the EU, the US, Japan, all the militaries and such. And uh, I was uh, I asked the same question initially. And I got a earful from everyone, the British rep in particular. Um, and they put the maps up and they showed me the Persian Gulf and the flow of commerce through the Strait of Hormuz. And then they showed me the Babel Mendez, the strait at the southern end of the Red Sea. Wow, it's incredible what goes through there. 60, 70% of the world's commerce headed for the Mediterranean, headed for Europe, coming from China, coming from India, and so forth. It's, uh, and it's not just oil, a lot of oil, a lot of gas, but it's all kinds of produce. It's everything from tinker toys to magazines. I mean, it, it, it is incredible the difference between the PG and the Red Sea in terms of the multiplicity of the commerce and so forth and so on. Um, and so you, you and, and then you look at the contestants and you look at that refugee flow and you look at what's being done to the refugee flow by criminals, for example, okay, the boat has got 40 people in it, it's made for 30, uh, gets to midpoint, it sinks, the people all drown, they go pick up a new crew and bring them over, charging them a fortune to bring them across. And there, it's both ways, as I said, it's people coming out of a, a starving Africa going over to the Gulf states to try and get a job, basically as slaves. And it's people coming out of Yemen and the surrounding area because of the war and not much for them over there, but they're going back and forth and the United States Navy and others are there just trying to manage the turmoil. Yes, I'm um, thinking actually it's security must be a huge issue. The, the issues of huge. Piracy, the fact that Somalia is effectively and has been a failed state, although it's Somaliland is in a different category, perhaps, Eritrea, yes. all in Yemen. It's the more you think of it, as you were saying, the more it concentrates the mind. But but we shouldn't ignore Iran. You did mention Iran earlier. We did briefly talk about the uh, nuclear agreement. Uh, and of course, that you know, the Biden administration comes in with a fresh outlook to all of this. But have there been, has anything concrete happened in, in recent weeks? Are the prospects for the, the, the United States coming back to the agreement, uh, how do they look? Well, Blinken has made a few statements. The president has even made a couple, and Zarif has made a few statements. Some have been adverse, some have been more positive. I think they made a big mistake, and I hope they're getting ready to rectify it, by not going whole hog with no conditions with a major humanitarian effort right off the bat, contrasting themselves with Thug Pompeo. That is to say, Pompeo, he sanctioned masks, he sanctioned COVID-19, uh, gear, vaccine, you name it. They should have gone with a massive campaign, no questions asked, no conditions imposed. We are going to help you with COVID, and we're going to help you massively. The way, for example, my president, no friend of Iran, George W. Bush, did after the big earthquake and bam, we sent everything uh, from fire department personnel to rescue dogs to help them get the citizens out of the rubble and everything. That would have been a brilliant move and it would have left the Iranians speechless. <laughs> they would have found their voices and started saying, well, they don't really, they're not going to do this. We'll just have to wait and see as they did in 2003. 
Um, but I think that would have been marvelous if they'd done that. Instead, we started off with this talk about conditions and we wanted to spread the talks over terrorism and missiles. And we wanted to talk about, you know, regional hegemony attempts and the war in Yemen and support for the Houthis. Ah, bull, let's get back to the table and let's make our full, our first move altruistic and then see what happens. Instead, they started doing this tit for sap stuff, but I think they learned their lesson now. I think both sides are now seriously talking about getting together, but I don't see the kind of talk within the US apparatus that would indicate to me that we aren't gonna screw the pooch, that we aren't gonna make it a mess again. And the Iranians have every reason to say to us, if you come into this with any kind of attitude like that, we're gone. We're out of here because we've seen this before. And besides, suppose we do renegotiate. Suppose we even talk about some of the other things you want to talk about. And you get a new president in 2024 who does the same thing Trump did before. Um, so why should we trust you? Uh, that's a very legitimate question on the part of the Iranians. Mm -hmm. Um, and also turning, because there have been recent pronouncements by the, by the president, the administration, foreign policy pronouncements towards other parts of the world, the Russian Federation and China come to mind. It's interesting because, you know, in, in some respects, it would appear that President Biden would appear to see that Putin and the Russian Federation present more of a threat to the United States interest than China does, whereas in effect that that can't be the case. The Russian Federation doesn't really have that economic muscle or the military muscle. It may have the disruptive abilities of social media and what have you, but it's China, surely. And what, why do you think that, the Putin, uh, that Biden seems to be taking a tougher attitude towards the Russians uh, at a time when China is clearly involved in intense repression of, of Uyghur people, it's maneuvering against Taiwan. It's closing down the agree basic agreement in Hong Kong, as you know, all of those things. China is very active and being quite aggressive in its own way. So why, why, do, why is that slight disconnect there? It's 29 years of uh, Biden's association with and fascination with and movement within the confines of the cold war <laughs> and that's i see that you would just you wouldn't believe it i see that in general officers and admirals uh, who are still talking mm -hmm. as if they they relish the days when you know the giu cap giuk gap really meant something to the submariners for example and it does again now i listen to admiral burke who probably commands more naval forces on the face of the earth than anyone in history the other day talking about the standing naval forces, Atlantic, standing naval forces, Naples, standing naval forces, Europe, and so forth, and Norway, and all the different uh, allies that he has. And he's right. He's absolutely right. He's not scared of the Russians at all. He said, he said something to the effect of, oh, we're being criticized because we made the Russians, we made the Russians do this, or they did this, and we haven't reacted. He said, the reason they stood up that new Northern Command is they're reacting to our changes in the Pacific. This is all reactive not you know offensive it's reactive to us because we're doing these things um russia is a great enemy mm. you know you're right russia's a filling station if they didn't have gas and oil they wouldn't have anything much um but that's enough to generate and, and of course they but have yeah, the, the same oh, military. They, still, they still have they, a massive they, complex of nuclear weapons too so that yes, that yes. does but saying that Larry, I mean, the, you know, military people are very intelligent, straightforward people. They, 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 my dad was in the, my father was in the military. All of his friends were very straightforward, honest people. They would just tell the truth. And they, and military people can see, surely, um, that, the, that if there's a military threat, it's potentially uh, in the Pacific. It's, it's around, it's around China, not Russia. So, are they are they able to? They, is their intelligence flowing to the to the Biden presidency? Are they saying to him, "Well, look, you know, China's more of a threat to to the U.S. and not not just to the U.S., but it could be more of a military threat in the longer run than, than the Russian Federation." Well, there's got to be a convenience to your threats too, and there's got to be a believability, and you've got to appear to be arrayed against that threat. And we appear to be arrayed against Russia with NATO and the allies, as Admiral Burke made very clear. 
I have allies. They don't. And then he ticked off some of his allies. And it's a formidable array of allies who spend more money together by a factor of 40 or so than Russia spends. Um, so that's part of it. It's convenience. Uh, the second part of it is, I think, a reluctance to admit, and we must admit, we must, that there are now two hegemons in the Indo-Pak region, mm -hmm. China and the United States. And that at any given time, because of the simple military principle of interior lines, China has the advantage. Now they may not, may not have many allies. Our allies formidably are Japan and Korea, not so formidably, lots of array of you know, other nations. Uh, I, I don't want to speak too disparagingly about Singapore. They bat way above their weight, but and they're not China. Um, but we are no longer the hegemon in that region. That's a real blow. When I talk to naval officers in particular today, it's, they don't want to admit it, but we're not. At any given time, China can do what it wants to do. That's not going to change, and it's probably going to get worse in terms of what the Soviets used to call the correlation of forces. So... There's some, there's, there's some angst about admitting what China might be were we to actually have to take them on in their AOR, their area of responsibility, which they have made quite formidable, by the way, uh, even with our um, uh, ability to break into their anti-access strategy, they're, they're quite formidable. And they're only going to get more formidable. Submarines, anti-carrier type forces and so forth, they're only going to get more formidable. So it, it's easy for Secretary Austin, for example, Lloyd Austin, to say my priorities are China, COVID, and climate. And, you know, <laughs> I, want to, I want to say, Lloyd, you should have said, and cooperation, <laughs> because that's the way, as Sergey. And Wang Yi said in Guilin, that's the way we should be looking at it. I don't care whether the Chinese mean it or not. That's the diplomacy we should be looking at, cooperation, because we've got so many things, nuclear weapons and climate change at the top of the list that we have to do something about, and we can't do it alone. We've got to do it collectively. Um, but they're not looking, they say they're looking to fight China, but nobody wants to fight China. Um, mm. And that's, that's, have you read 2034, Ackerman's book and Admiral Stavridis's book, 2034, about the war? Larry, I mean, you know, war and China, this is, this is, this is the stuff of sort of, 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 of crazed moments, I suppose. But, the, but certainly um, there's a feeling abroad that amongst the Chinese leadership, perhaps, that they have been able to get away with things during the Trump era, and particularly with relation to, within relation to Hong Kong and the Uyghurs, that they might not necessarily get away with at other times. Um, and uh, they have also, I mean, you, you alluded to the, the China's near neighbors. I mean, th they've upset a lot of their near neighbors, the Philippines, uh, Korea, Japan, uh, yeah. Vietnam, historically. Uh, so, and you were saying China has, not very many friends in the, in the region. And yet there doesn't seem to be a serious way of kind of restraining the Chinese at the moment, or perhaps they've been rather too provoked to be want to be restrained in any way. I don't know, but there's uh, not a great deal of thinking about this, it seems. Just going into that power equation with the presupposition that you're gonna restrain China <laughs> is dangerous, I think. Uh, particularly if you're talking about doing it over Taiwan, um, which is looking more and more like it might be the place where we do it, um, and lay that blame at the feet of the Taiwanese as much as at the feet of Washington, particularly uh, the Taiwanese who decided that they, they think Washington will defend them. This is another die for Tbilisi, die for Danzig, we were talking about that. I was talking about that with a member of Nor Norway's parliament the other day. Die for Oslo. Um, Norway's in in for a dollar, in for a million now. With its, uh, we were loyal in Syria. We were loyal in Libya. My God, we led the strikes in Libya. We were loyal in Afghanistan. We are loyal in those places. You must invoke Article Five if the Russians start a hybrid war against us. And my comment was, 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You think the United States is going to buy a nuclear exchange with Russia to defend Norway? Um, you probably need to think about that a little harder. Um, this is not some child's play here. We're talking about two very well-equipped nuclear powers. And Putin's already said, and indeed he broke the INF Treaty in order to produce nuclear weapons that he could use against the NATO incursion into Russia. That's published doctrine now for the Russian military. Um, I don't think the right response to that is for us to develop a similar missile and put it on ballistic missile submarines and threaten him from the ocean. How do you know what kind of missile's coming at you if it's coming out of a ballistic missile submarine? <laughs> is it strategic or is it just one of those little ones? And there aren't any really little ones. Mm. Um, so it's dangerous world still, and we don't need to be making it more dangerous. But mm. well, you know, with things like, for example, what Richard Haas was talking about the other day, we need strategic clarity with regard to Taiwan now. We need to tell Beijing, we will, in fact, if you use any kind of force against Taiwan, even if it's clandestine force, we will defend Taiwan with the full might of the United States. That is really not very smart. And Richard really, really made me wonder about his sanity when he said that. Chaz Freeman, Ambassador Chaz Freeman is smarter when he says strategic ambiguity has worked for a long time and there's no reason to discard it. Certainly not right now. Maybe later when China gets to the point where it can massively protect itself against us, which it will eventually get to probably, um, then we might want to say to Taipei, sorry, we're out of here. Mm, mm, interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, um, Larry, of course, um, the Middle East is closest to our hearts here at Palestine Deep Dive for obvious reasons. And the, and the, last, the last time uh, we spoke, we were anticipating uh, a Biden uh, presidency. Um, you didn't predict it, but we, but we thought you thought there was a good chance of it. And we talked about what that might actually mean for Israel-Palestine. And in particular, um, would there be any particular changes? And would, for instance, the um, US embassy be moved back from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv? Would there be a stronger um, approach taken by the Biden administration towards illegal settlements and what have you? What we have heard in the time since the election of the Biden presidency is that actually there won't be any change. Uh, and the, um, of course, there's been a condemnation of the International Criminal Court's investigation into alleged Israeli war crimes. Uh, and uh, a, a reminder for those of th those people who don't know that the United States is not a signatory uh, to the International Criminal Court. So, as you were saying, really, you didn't expect a great deal of change towards uh, U.S. Israeli uh, relations. Um, I mean, are you you won't be surprised by that? But do you think do you think there may be there may be change yet or not? I think there has been significant change in the sense that Pompeo and Kushner are gone. Um, I can't say that too strongly. <laughs> They're gone. I wish Netanyahu were gone too. But when I say that, I have to say mm, his replacement might be even worse. Um, and that's certainly, I think, a reality that stares us in the face every day. I do think there will be subtle changes. I don't think anything will move. I think the U.S. military base will stay there, for example, inviting Hezbollah to attack it so we can be in for a penny, in for a pound. Um, that's the reason it's there. Uh, for almost half a century, the United States military told us never, never order us to put a base in Israel. We won't do it. And now we've done it. Um, Changes on the periphery, changes in terms of using occupied territories, for example, to describe the West Bank uh, and other places where the Israelis have clearly broken international law. Uh, condemnation of kneecapping Palestinians with people who have no other business than to do that at the, at the fence with, a, with sniper rifles. Um, maybe even behind the scenes encouragement of, of, of some of the more or less pronounced efforts to bring the Israelis before the ICC with regard to some of those war crimes. They are clearly war crimes. I had a conversation the other day with a general officer in the United States Army who said, what, Larry, would you do if your people were on the border with Mexico with orders to kneecap 
any of the people coming across, no matter whether they were children, you know, 16 year olds, adults or whatever, men, women, so forth and so forth, yeah, they'd be court martialed. Right, we did. And he cited to me too, we had court martial who did that when we had troops on the border some time ago. And I remembered one of them, it was a Marine. Um, I happened to be with the Marines at that time. So I remembered it. Um, so, but what are we doing to Israel? Absolutely nothing. We're not even making any demarches as far as I know. We're not, we're not even saying, ooh, bad, you shouldn't be doing that, slap on the wrist. Um, so will that change? Maybe over time, particularly if Biden and Netanyahu, if Netanyahu persists, don't hit it off in a big way. And I suspect that might be the case. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll just have to wait and see. But any big changes other than, you know, Pompeo and Kushner being gone, or Trump being gone and so forth, I, I think not. This relationship is one that will take the empire into hell eventually. We and Israel, Israel with it. We, we are, of course, as, as we speak, kind of waiting for the final results of, uh, of an Israeli election. Um, yes. And of course, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu, should he be returned to office, is, is, as you were saying, is not one of uh, President Biden's favorites. He wasn't one of the first to be phoned by President Biden. And you get the strong impression that really uh, Netanyahu's support for Trump has counted against him. But, you know, looking forward, uh, do you think Netanyahu may feel slightly restrained, even if he is elected again by the Biden presidency or, or not? Does he just push ahead? I mean, it, nobody seems to be quite, nobody seems to have the power or the willingness to, to say uh, thus far and no further when it comes to illegal settlements, for instance. Restraint is not a word I would associate with Bibi. And I think with Thucydides said that restraint, among the manifestations of power, restraint is admired most. Bibi is not admired in that sense. Um, so, and I don't think anything the United States would do, not could do, it could do something, but I don't think it will do anything that will uh, teach Bibi a new lesson about restraint. Um, Bibi will do whatever he can get away with, period. That's, that's the way I look at it. And as I said before, sadly enough, anyone who looks like he might be able to put together a government or a coalition that could rule um, looks more or less the same. I think that's part because as one Israeli said to me the other day, who's, uh, thank God, of a different disposition, he said, the average Israeli now has not had to fear, you know, in a discotheque on a bus or whatever for a long time, and is doing really well because the economy is booming. Israel is the predatory capitalist state in the Eastern Mediterranean, having learned well from Britain and the United States how to do predatory crony capitalism. Um, and so why should anything change? They don't want anything to change. They want life to go on precisely the way it has. And Netanyahu is the guarantee of that. So they're not going to kick him out. Even if they hate his guts, even if they think he's a criminal, he's protected them and given them a successful economy. It's, um, uh, it's a lesson in sort of real politic and real economics. Uh, it's difficult to dispute that, of course. Um, yep. The only thing that I suppose could be said is that you do get the impression that, you know, after great periods of time, there comes also great fatigue, especially when there's, there are opportunities to close down expensive uh, and embarrassing problems. And Israel, of course, is quite an expensive proposition for the United States. And I think it's like three and a half billion a year in military um, aid goes to Israel. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, the whole Middle East is a kind of sore that is constantly being scratched at. Um, so you, you do wonder whether there comes a time when, as with Yemen, uh, as with Syria, uh, a U.S. administration says, well, look, enough is enough. In fact, as Obama, the Obama presidency did towards Israel, and one of its final acts was to abstain at the Security Council on that resolution on Israeli right. settlement, if you recall, Larry. Yep. But maybe that's, 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 about as, that's about as far as, <laughs> as we will go. You know, you're talking about the budget. 
I remember 2004, the Deputy Secretary of State running the budget meeting, and, and we had gone through this for four years, but still, it was a shock when we saw what we had left after we took out Egypt's 3.6 and Israel's 3.6. We had about not quite a billion dollars left for the entire United States diplomacy foreign affairs campaign. <laughs> ah, well, that's that, that, that exactly what changes it. You know, that realization that all the money's going elsewhere and not be used for more sensible things. Well, look, yes. Larry, unfortunately, we have to we have to sort of gradually bring things to a close. It's a great, it's a great shame because I'm, you know, we could talk for hours, but we we can't take any more of your time. But I thought before before um we disappeared. I might just ask you, I think I asked you this last time. Of course, a lot has changed in those few months since we last spoke. I mean, do you, on the whole, feel a little bit more optimistic when you look at um, global politics now um, with the election of President Biden and return to multilateralism, if you like, and to sort of international rules order, as they all the uh, UN folk like to talk about. They're delighted, of course, to have the Biden administration. But do you feel a bit more optimistic, or do you just think that this kind of, this could just be a little interregnum, um, an oasis of calmness and more lunacy is around the corner? It, of course, could be that. Um, but I do, to answer the principal question, I do feel better. Uh, my wife feels better. My grandchildren feel better. <laughs> Everybody feels better. Um, essentially because we all believe we were under the rule of a pseudo mafia. Uh, and it's gone, or at least mostly gone. Um, that's in and of itself a positive change. And now it remains to be seen if we've just got more of the same with a softer touch, or if we've got someone who's really intent on changing things to the positive, both internationally and domestically. And, and here's the key, is capable of doing it. Um, and I think that's the worrying point. <laughs> Thus far and no further. Colonel Larry Wilkerson, thank you very, very much for being our guest today. It's been great to see you. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for your insights and for your wisdom. Uh, we hope to speak to you again soon. Uh, and I just have to say from all of us here at Palestine Deep Dive, thank you very much. Thank you to our guest, Larry Wilkerson, and hope to see you next time. Thanks for having me on and stay healthy and may the sunshine persist. <laughs> in Britain. <laughs> <laughs>